0: So, let's jump in. Joel chapter 1, verse 1 tells us this. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pat- Pat- Pateo." Wow, I can't, know, I can't pronounce his name. Pateu, whatever. Um, so, there are two things that we know from this verse. That's a really hard name. That's the first thing. And that Joel wrote this book. I'm kind of serious about that. That's all we know from this. No one actually knows who Joel is or what his story background. We know his dad's name, who had a cool name, hard name to pronounce. Um, besides that, this book doesn't give us much information about the author, or it doesn't give us any information about when it was written. Uh, the content suggests an invasion is coming, and there, therefore many scholars place this book before either the invasion of Assyria or Babylon, but invasions happen all the time, and it could also suggest invasions of another big empire, like the Roman Empire eventually, or, or another invasion that affected Jerusalem. This book does, men- does not mention any kings, it does not mention any prophets besides Joel, um, But it does mention Jerusalem and the temple. And so uh, another thing is, plus, Joel is very familiar with other minor prophet writers. He quotes from Amos and Isaiah and Zephaniah among other minor prophets or other prophets. And that leads us to about the last thing about Joel that we know. And he doesn't, in the book, he doesn't accuse Israel of any specific sin, He does call them to repentance and says that judgment or the day of the Lord is coming, but he doesn't go into any detail about their sin. It's almost like he's assuming that you, as a reader, have been reading other minor prophets and you already know how the people have rebelled against God. That's kind of an assumption there, but but that's one of the reasons why we are placing this book towards the end of our series, placing it during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's the context. Now let's look at the book's message. In the first two chapters, the theme of the day of the Lord is back. In the first chapter, Joel explores the day of the Lord in the past. And then chapter two, he moves forward towards Future events. So chapter one starts off with Joel telling his readers that this message that he's about to share should be passed down from one generation to another. So what message should be passed down from one generation to another? Well, he says, starts off and he says, Remember how God saved you from Egypt. The verse 4, he's describing an event that, that took place in the past, uh, a catastrophic plague of locusts. He's probably referring to to the Exodus story. In verse 4, he says this, um, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts have eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. So locusts is basically like a heavy-armed grasshopper. It's like a grasshopper who went to CrossFit and worked out. So this should be a picture of him on the screen. So he's... He has an armor. I mean, he's just a buff grasshopper, and uh, they're about three inches long, and uh, the modern world actually hasn't seen a locust plague in a while, but in, night, in 1870, the plains near the Rocky Mountains experienced this plague, and so if you go to the next slide, is there another one that's black and white? There it is. So that's actually a picture from uh, 1870. And then you can go back to the other picture just to kind of get a little more. So that's, that's locust in action, I guess. Right? Like crazy. Um, and so, uh, so a little over 100 years ago, locusts descended by trillions on the Great Plains. And, and they even made it all the way down to Texas. So this is how they work. They, this is how they work. They dig holes in the soil about four inch deep and uh, four and a half half inch wide. And they deposit more than 100 eggs into each hole. So scientists have observed that 70,000 eggs can be concentrated in a single yard of soil and they would dig holes for miles. So that means within weeks, uh, these young locusts would hatch and would look like a large army of ants because their wings take time to grow. So these ants, they would just hop and cover over six, 600 feet a day and they would devour anything that came in their way. And when their wings grew, they would be able to hop higher and devour anything that grew on the trees. They, they even ate the bark off the trees, leaving behind wasteland that looked like nuclear holocaust. He's starting to get a picture here that Joel is painting for us. They experienced this before, so they know this. Well, for us, we need to understand it a little bit, right? And the picture that Joel is describing is just awful. It's awful. And for the rest of chapter one, he's showing how awful it is with... with where, when there is a plague like this. And he, next verse, kind of humorously says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it cut off from your mouth. So, so he's basically saying, like, sorry, wine drinkers, the locust ate all your grapes. He's kind of being funny here, but then, he, he, he's, he, even though he's being funny, he's showing the destruction that is taking place. And, and up to this point, people are tracking with Joel. Up to this point, we, we remember the exodus, right? We remember the exodus. We, maybe, we remember that when God brought disaster on our enemies. And yeah, let's laugh about the wine drinkers, those Egyptians. But then verse 6, he turns it on God's people. And he says, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. And now nobody is laughing. Laughter is gone. And the image is churning from remembering their salvation from Egypt to remembering what happens when they churn their backs on God. So up to verse 12, Job, through poetry, describes the effects of this disaster. And then starting in verse 13, he calls the people to repent. He says this in verse 13: Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O minister of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And so he's, he's calling them to repentance. Now, chapter two follows a similar flow to chapter one. The theme of the day of the Lord continues. But this time around, it's not dealing with the past, but it's moving to a future. The first three verses of chapter 2 make us think that there's another episode of locusts that will come. He says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like we're thinking millions of locusts are about to come. That sounds like it, right? But by verse 4, the locusts. Become an army. He says, their appearance is like an appearance of horses and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of ch- chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like a crackling of flame of fire, devouring the stumble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So, Joel is describing soldiers who are marching and destroying anything in their path just like locusts do. And we don't really know which army he's talking about. It could have been Assyria or Babylon or Persia or any army, in fact. It could be any army that would bring destruction. Joel doesn't care to name the army for us. But these armies are gods, and he's bringing judgment on the day of the Lord. And he concludes this section in verse 11 by saying, Who can endure it? Right, it's a pretty gloomy description of things to come and who can endure it. And the answer is obvious. No one can endure this. No one can endure this. And as we read these two chapters, we still don't know why the day of the Lord is coming. Uh, like in this text, in this book alone, uh, why is the destruction? We don't really know why because he doesn't mention any sins up to this point. We can assume Joan knows that we are reading other minor prophets, like I said in the introduction, and he doesn't need to spell out the crimes for us. We can assume that it's the way the Israelites took advantage of the poor. We can assume it's the way they brought false gods into their temples. We can assume that it's how, how, how they only cared about satisfying their, their own desires. But because he doesn't name the sin, we can also assume that it's any sin and all sin. So if we zoom out, it's anytime time we distrust God's goodness and distrust God's character and instead trust ourselves to define what is good and evil. That usually leads to sin. That's what led the fir- to the first sin. Adam and Eve distrusted God's goodness and his character, and that led to Sin. And if we zoom in into our own lives, we notice the same thing happening to us. We repeat their mistakes, Adam and Eve's, over and over and over. We distrust God's goodness and God's character often. And instead, we try to define what is good and evil for ourselves. And Paul says it like this in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So, in other words, sin is a problem that all of us have in us. Even though Joe is not describing a specific sin here, he's describing the consequences of sin. And we can apply that to any and all sin that we may be struggling and wrestling with. Because sin is in all of us, and sin is all the same to the same degree. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. We are no better than the Israelites. We're no better than the Israelites. But here's another reality that's right there. The more we rest in the gospel, the more we learn who God is and how holy he is, the more we realize our sin and our sinfulness, the older we get, the more mature we get, the more our eyes are open to how broken and sinful we are. Because if we don't think we are sinful, then we won't feel our need for Jesus. Do you see that? Because if we don't think we're sinful, like if the starting point is that like, I think I'm okay, then you don't need Jesus. But if the starting point for you go, man, I am a broken, sinful person, just like the Israelites, whatever that sin is that I'm struggling with, then then it makes you realize your need for Jesus, because if we don't need Jesus, then we will believe that we are enough on our own. And we'll keep then defining what we think is good and evil. And when we see the cracks and the broken places, we'll either just ignore them or try to tape over them. Right? You can look at that in your life and see where that is. And God doesn't want that for us. God doesn't want that for us. In his grace, he wants us to realize how sinful we are and how he, Jesus, took that sin on the cross. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Joel simply, at this point, just points us to repentance. He, he's the, he doesn't, Joel doesn't talk about the cross. He just simply points us to repentance. He's, he's saying the day of the Lord is coming and it's going to be rough unless you change And so starting in verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So first, how? How do we repent? He says, return to me, uh, r- repent with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garment. So if we all struggle with sin, but true, report, but true repentance brings healing, and he describes true repentance as something that, that is done with all our heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with, with mourning. And, and so this is not simplistic, So this is not simplistic. Joel knows that repentance can be a show that we put up just to get out of trouble. And God is not interested in the show. He's interested in the true repentance. So what does true repentance look like? First, you have to realize that what you are doing or living is wrong. It's the realization that you are a sinner. We can't talk about repentance in the first place unless we realize that something is wrong in us. And here's the catch. We, in ourselves, will never think that something is so wrong with us that we can't fix. God has to reveal that to us. And that's the way salvation works. That's, the way, that's what maturity looks like. God revealing himself to us and we realize that we're nothing in ourselves. This is just like the vision from last week uh, when Joshua is standing before God and his robe is filthy and God took away his iniquity and God made him clean. So so whether it's a conversation about salvation in the first place or whether God has saved you but you struggle with sin, the first place, the starting place is realizing that we are filthy rags standing before a holy God and that never changes. So we admit to the actual state that we are in. But true repentance doesn't stop with admitting the real condition of our hearts. At the same breath, we fall at the feet of Jesus and we ask him for repentance. So we acknowledge that we are wrong and then as soon as we realize that we are wrong, we fall on our knees and cry out to God, save me. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. So God can change a heart, a hard heart, into a our repentant one. God can do that. So we don't just admit that we are wrong. We run to God and ask him to grant us repentance. And listen, if you go online, we all go online, and we try to Google things, right? So if you go online, you Google the steps of repentance. And you'll find five, eight, twelve step methods of repentance. But for a true heart change, For our hearts to truly change, all we need to is to realize that we are broken and to fall on our knees and cry out to God, the rest will follow. The rest of the steps will happen if that is truly happening in us. If you truly realize that you are a broken sinner who is living in the wrong and you fall on your knees and you cry out to God, the rest will follow. And here's the beauty of what Joel does here. He goes on to explain the motivation for repentance. He goes on to explain the mo- motivation. And this is a big deal because, because we are so prideful as humans. Uh, and the only thing that breaks that pride is actually seeing why sh- we should repent. So talking about repentance, talking about it like, hey, acknowledge that you're wrong and, and follow at the feet of Jesus. Like you're listening and you're going, yeah, that's good. But, but your heart is going, yeah, I probably won't do it until you hear this. The motivation for repentance, Joel tells us, return to the Lord your God. In other words, repent. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So return to the Lord because of who God is. His character is trustworthy, and he is good. He is gracious, in fact. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. The why for change is that God is a God of love. Or as 1 John 4.19 tells us, we love because he first loved us. The why is always rooted in God and his love. God who loves, God who forgives, God who's gracious. And as we grasp that love of God for us, then it produces love for God in us. In other words, you can try to repent all day long by yourself, but that's just another version of living by your own rules. The moment we realize who God is, the moment we realize that we don't deserve this love, the moment we realize that his love is a free gift and that there's nothing we can do to earn it, that's the moment true repentance can take root. The words that Joel uses to describe the motivation for repentance come from a story from Exodus. Here's the context for for why he's saying this. He's saying the story in Exodus show how God forgave the Israelites after they made the golden calf when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law from God. And as the story goes, Moses was gone for a little while and and the people freaked out and decided to make a God for themselves. um, An image from Egypt who would be their provider, their safety. And Moses comes back and sees what they did. They replaced the true God with a golden calf. Yet, as the story goes, God's love is more powerful than their sin. And that's when God describes himself as God who's slow to anger. God who's gracious and merciful. God who's abounding in steadfast love. And we have seen this in other minor prophets too, right? We saw it in Jonah. When people repented, God spared them because that's his character. So true repentance, according to Joel, it's having a broken heart that knows the character of the one we offended in the first place. It's understanding that we have offended a holy God. It's understanding that we are wrong and that we are dressed in filth. And it's asking God to grant us true repentance. And lastly, letting the why of repentance soak into our heart. It's trusting God's character. It's trusting God's goodness for us. But here's what happens often when we attempt repentance. Here's what happens when we attempt repentance. We view our sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy, right? And, and, and because we view it that way, we want to do better So when we sin, we kind of feel like, oh, I want to do better. And and when we don't do better, we get upset with ourselves that we should have done better, as if that's possible. We think we can be good enough through our own effort. When we do that, we're trying to change our fruit without looking at the roots. Our definition of what's good and what's evil hasn't changed. It's still ours, not God's. And as long as we're living that way, we, as Samuel tells David in 2 Samuel 12, 9, despise the word of the Lord, or as the NIV translates is despise the living God. The one, uh, uh, it's, it's describing the who we have offended. And one of the most sincere moments of repentance in the Bible, that if anybody talks about repentance often, they go to Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51, and he says this against you, you only have I sinned. David knew that his sin wasn't lack of moral performance. It was in a, in a rejection of God. True repentance isn't changing your actions or your performance. It's churning of heart back to God. So that's why in Joel, God calls his people to repent by saying, return to me with your, your whole heart. We realize we're broken, that we can't fix ourselves, that our roots are rotten, and we run to God and ask him to change us, and in his love, he moves our hearts to change. Then in verse 18 of Joel chapter 2, Joel says this: Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So so giving the way this verse starts and the way the, the book Book up to this has gone. This is a surprising twist, right? You expect that God, whose people have rejected him in favor of their own way, you expect the whole that he would respond with judgment and justice. The locusts are coming, uh, the armies are coming, and God but here it goes, but God has pity on his people. That's surprising. That's very surprising in this context. Instead of judgment and justice, he gives us grace and mercy. And then the book goes on to show what it means to live in this grace and mercy, or what does it look to live in this repentant life? It's almost as if the Garden of Eden is coming back to life, and we get a glimpse of what heaven will be like. First, in verses 20 and 21, God defeats the invaders, the locusts, the armies. In verses 22, 26, God restores the devastated land. The, nu- the nucle- nuclear wasteland is growing life. And in verse 27, God gives a promise that his presence will be among his people. So the enemy is defeated, the land is being restored, and God is with us. The book ends by expounding on each one of these uh, these hopes by alluding to other prophets, other minor prophets and other prophets, and their prophecies regarding this hope. So verses 28 and 29 deal with the hope of his presence living with us, among us, among his people. So God says this in verse 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servant, in those days I'll pour out my spirit. So what Joel is doing here is he's expounding on what Isaiah said in Isaiah 32. And Isaiah 32, 15 says this, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness become a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So the Spirit of God will be poured on us and that will be God's presence with us. Then in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, Joel moves on to the next theme, or next hope. Joel again brings up the locust-type armies who have now been defeated and shows how on the final day of the Lord, God will deal with evil and God will bring justice to all the wrongs. God will will be the judge of the living and the dead and he brings justice to his people. In this section, he picks up the language of Zephaniah who uses similar words to tell that God, in fact, will be the judge of good and evil. God will bring justice. And then finally, Joel ends the book with a similar language from Zechariah. From last week, the book that we studied, he talks about the land being restored. It says there will be a new Eden and that there will be a river flowing out of it. And it's a blessing for everyone in the world. And the book ends leaving us with great hope the hope that God will bring justice, the hope that God provides a way for true repentance and change, the hope that we are able to live with God and hope and and promise of the second coming when Jesus will restore all things to himself. And even though those who are reading Joel for the first time or the first original readers of Joel back in the day didn't experience the great promises that God made, we do. They didn't. They, it was just a, it was a prophecy. It was something they read and hoped for. But we can look back and we have experienced some of these. In Acts 2, Peter goes, goes, gets up and preaches a sermon. And in this sermon, he quotes Joe. He says, listen, Joel's prophecy prophesied a day when God will be with us forever. And that moment that his spirit will take a dwelling place in our hearts, this moment is now. Peter says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will receive the Spirit. In other words, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, is all about the arrival of God who is now with us forever. Right? So his prophecy is, because, is being fulfilled. Jesus comes at Advent as Emmanuel, God with us, and because he came and died for us, now the Spirit descends on us and lives with us forever. And that happens when we realize that we are sinners, when we realize that we're not enough, but Jesus is enough for us. The Spirit coming upon us marks the end of do-it-yourself era, and it marks the beginning of the age of grace. Because Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And I love the contrast between Acts 1 and 2. Acts 1, Jesus' friends are hiding in the upper room after Jesus has left them and ascended to heaven. And Acts 2, the Spirit comes upon them, and now Peter is preaching a sermon to hundreds of people, right? Like, that's a contrast. That's different. Something must have happened in their heart, in his heart. And after the sermon, they say, as Peter preached the sermon, the people say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized. It's like almost a full circle coming back to Joel again, right? Repent and be baptized. So maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you today. You are hearing the prophet Joel talking about God being with us and you realize that you have been living your own way. God is saying to you, I forgive you, I love you, I can change you. I will be with you forever. Repent and be baptized. Maybe you're in here, but habitually struggle with sin. God is saying to you, I forgive you, I love you, I can change you, I will be with you forever. Repent and believe in the work of the cross. You see, Peter shows us that, that Joe's prophecy became a reality, our reality, when we believe in Jesus and repent from our sinful ways. <laughs> the Spirit comes then. He's the one helping us change. He's the one convicting us of sin. He's the one reminding us of the finished work of the cross. He's the one that's changing us, maturing us, and not leaving us stuck in our own way. And that is amazing reality that we get to live in. But this reality is not without suffering and hardship. This reality uh, that I'm talking about, the Spirit living in you, does not exclude hardship and suffering. David Lowe says that the promise of the Pentecost is not that we will suffer no more difficulties or hardship, nor that God will remove us from challenges, but rather that in the Holy Spirit, God comes to be with us and for us to use all that we have and are for the sake of those around us. So it's the eternal promise of hope. And through Joel, we know that God is not done. We know that God is not done. Uh, we know that Jesus will come back again. Like, we don't just say that just to be f- cute or funny or, or, or you know, that, like, this is reality. We know that Jesus will come back again, and he will right all the wrongs. In Revelation, we read this describing the image of Jesus coming back again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that incredible? And then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Joel, in his book, also promised a future when Jesus will restore all things very similar to what we just read in Revelation. So we have the Holy Spirit with us now, and that's a beautiful thing. He's the one who's convicting us, working on us, maturing us, helping us. But we still can hope for the future that Joel described in other passages of Scripture. Because God will bring a better Eden. He will create a place where all things will be made new. And this is the promise we hope in while we remain here. Jesus will come back. Jesus will restore all things to himself. And until then, his spirit lives with us and we will never be on our own. And and so wherever you are today, whatever you needed to hear today, return to him. That's the starting point. Let's pray.